All right, uh, here we are today uh, with Chris Wavy, uh, CEO um, and founder at Lendable.io. Um, Chris, how are you? Very well. Pleased to be here. How are you? Yeah, good, 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 good to get you. Um, good, good to get you on here. Um, things are going well, as you can see. I think the sun is shining in London, so um, yeah, th things are good. Good stuff. Yeah, I got the sun too. I'm hiding it with my background. But... All right. Okay. Well. Listen, so, so Chris, let, 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 let's jump in. Let's dive in to find out what you guys are doing at Lendable. Um, it, it's obviously, it's an exciting time for those in the fintech sector. You're obviously not only in, a, in, a, in an exciting sector, you're also um, uh, poised in a, a very good position um, for emerging market economies. Um, how did this come about? And how did Lendable come about? And um, what is it that you guys are actually trying to achieve? Yeah, so uh, Lendable started about six years ago. Uh, and the initial vision was one of, of two cousins, my, um, my co-partners, Daniel and Dylan. Daniel came from a venture capital background and was doing a lot in clean energy, uh, which in which doing he came across investments in Africa. Uh, and Dylan was a data scientist, uh, sort of technologist, who was one of the first employees at Lyft. Um, and the original observation was Daniel's, that he was looking at these emerging economies and seeing investments that he as a sort of San Francisco-based venture capitalist could not take advantage of because it was sort of too out there and too out of mandate. Um, but he thought were really interesting. And basically it was all around the advent of digital payments. So historically, if people were paying in cash, you don't really get a track record. It's not something you can really audit. So, you know, if I were to say, if I have to find an individual who says, yes, I, I've, I got a loan in the card, I've been paying it in cash every week. You don't have a track record you can verify to make that something that's investable for an international investor. Uh, and Daniel's observation was that in um, a lot of emerging economies, you've kind of jumped uh, from one step all the way kind of to ahead of some developing countries um, with digital payments. And specifically, it was Kenya at first with, with something called Impesa, where basically any individual, as long as you have a mobile phone, can store money and pay with their mobile phone. And that, for him, the vision, so the thing he spotted was that was potentially transformational, because as soon as everything's digital, it creates a record. If it creates a record, you can study it, you can analyze it, you can potentially invest in it. Um, so sorry, go on. No, no, sure. I was going to ask, but, but again, you know, with regards to the markets that you've entered, yeah. like it's a they're they're hard markets to enter. Yeah. Uh, you don't you can't just you know go to Kenya and um, set up shop like so. How again? Like how did you guys? Did you have an inroad? Did you know people? What, what did you guys do? So they are difficult. I agree. I and mean, we we're now in well twenty to thirty different markets across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Uh, and I think it's two part. Part is this new technologies, digital payments that we now know how to monitor. And the key bit of what we do is that coming from Dylan's background, we integrate with the loan management systems or the CRMs of any fintech in our geographies. So that means we can live access the data that they say they have about payments or, or remittances or receivables, anything like that. And then what we also do is we integrate with their banks or mobile wallets and we check that the information they have is correct. So basically we have really good quality information that no one else has. You know, right now we have uh, over 30 million individual loans in which we have data um, across all those places. So in terms of getting to those countries, the first is that there's that technology that there's now digital payments taking place. The second is that we have the expertise to integrate and monitor and verify those. 
And the third is quite traditional. The third, and this is probably where more my background comes, is that um, we do the sort of quite long, boring work of setting up uh, the legal agreements to operate in those countries. So, you know, getting regulatory approval, doing um, facility agreements, security structuring, that can take in a new jurisdiction four to six months. Uh, and so it's those things coming together that allow us to do it. And so, so if, if I'm if I'm um, if I'm looking to take out a loan uh, with Lendable, essentially, is it a case that I would just like download the app and then I would just apply? I mean, how 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 does it work from the user? Yeah, so, so we our underlying borrowers can be consumers. So it can be man on the street. Um, it can be small SME businesses. It can be asset finance. So we finance a lot of motorbikes, uh, cars, solar home systems, that sort of thing but we don't actually interact with the end consumer. What we would do is we'd interact with a FinTech in country. So a FinTech that serves those clients. So if you wanna be a client of Lendable as a FinTech, uh, we have an initial information request. So we'd ask just to, for some of your historic data, some of your just sort of, um, numbers, backgrounds, et cetera. We then set up this integration. So we have a team, our team, our tech team is actually based in, in Kenya um, and they, well, between Kenya and the US, uh, they'll set up an integration so that we're integrated with your systems and your bank accounts to, to verify all your data. Uh, and on that basis, we do kind of normal credit work and then put it onto our platform as a borrower. Uh, and we've gone from doing facilities, you know, we wouldn't go to small anymore, but we started kind of a couple of hundred thousand dollars all the way up to kind of $14 million. And did you say you've now got a, a 3 million like individual loans? Uh, so in terms of individual loans underlying our facilities, more like 30 million. Oh, wow, 30. Oh, so individual loans. We also do payment companies. So I don't count on that company uh, in that number of payment companies. So payment companies, if you think like if you use Revolut or World Remit or something like this, yeah, um, you're sending money from one country to another. And from you as an experienced point of view, you'll see the money hit your account basically immediately. If I go on Revolut and I have a Revolut card, I'll have my, I put pounds on, I have my euros accessible straight away. Yeah. However, for Revolut, they need the money to settle. So even if you do it with a Visa card, it takes a day or two days to settle. So they need float. Um, so basically they can provide it immediately. And we provide also float for payment companies, which is on top of all those 30 million loans that we, we find. Thank you. So, so what does the actual future look like um, for FinTech with, with the emerging markets? And how is it gonna shape their economies? I think it's already shaping uh, a lot of economies massively and it will continue to. And, and I think it's this kind of jumping a step in terms of you know, you've had a huge percentage of the population uh, in frontier and emerging markets that are underbanked, they don't have access to any real financial services. And historically, you've needed kind of bricks and mortar, you need banks to, to emerge and you've had kind of microfinance institutions, but it hasn't. It's not really worked because it's not been feasible commercially. And what digital has done is it's allowed all that to be accessible with a mobile phone. And what you do find is actually mobile phone penetration in these countries, even with people living in very, very basic conditions, is very good. And so it suddenly made that accessible and most importantly made it commercial. So you can have the impact, but you can also make it profitable because you don't have those big overheads that you'd have to have with you know, individual people dealing with every transaction. So you know, I see uh, more and more transactions in emerging markets being done um, digitally, and so that's driving more and more uh, inclusivity in terms of, of access to financial services. And and so, I mean, particularly like Africa being, is Africa your main market then? Or, or... Yeah, Africa's where we started, so it's still our right. biggest market. I think if yeah. you look forward 18 months, we'll probably be evenly split between Latin America, Asia and Africa. Um, so Asia and Africa, so 
if you look at you know, Africa's the smallest market, um, even though that's where we started, so that's the biggest for us. Uh, Southeast Asia is then multiples higher than that, and Latin America is larger again. And, and what do you think is going to change for the people in, in these countries? If you look yeah. in Kenya, uh, one of our biggest borrowers in Kenya provides loans to buy motorcycle taxis. So kind of rickshaws, like three-wheelers, where it's with, you know, your passengers sit in the back and you can kind of see, you can see it in a lot of emerging countries. Yeah. Uh, these bikes, an individual can't afford to buy one of these bikes straight out. So instead, with uh, some of our borrowers, they'll pay you know, 5 to 20% down, and then they'll hire purchase that bike over a year to two years. Um, that gives a person the opportunity to create their own business, to become an entrepreneur, to, to run their own motorcycle taxi. And what we see in Kenya is, even with the cost of repaying the loan, they earn an above average wage for a Kenyan. And that's during the, price, the process of them paying the loan off. And then after 18 months or so, they own the bike, and then they make even more because they no longer have repayments. So basically, for, for an example like that, it's giving someone the opportunity to correct an, an above average wage with very little down. And without that product, they've never been able to do that. I was actually um, speaking to, oh, I think it was head of engineering at uh, Peach Payments recently. Yeah. And like, we, we were just talking about how like Kenya particularly, like how it's just like come along like leaps and bounds um over the last decade or so and you know i think even at rayon like we're starting to see um a lot more opportunities for us like in africa especially in east africa um you know, it's a hard working hard working community hard working countries um and they're smart have you ever have you been out to kenya at all yeah yeah no pretty frequently so uh, we have an office there we have uh, we've got about 12 people in Kenya right now. Um, so, yeah, I, I go pretty frequently. Thanks, nice. COVID, once or twice a year. Sure. Uh, yeah, we have people in, in Kenya, in Singapore, uh, in Mexico, in the US, and in London. It's such, it's such an incredible, incredible place. Like, um, I went a good 10 years ago now, and um, I, like, travelled around. Um, I went around, like, uh, Samburu, Nakuru. Uh, what went around like the uh, the Maasai like triangle into like Tanzania and and we went to this school and these kids in there right they, they haven't they're walking like two three miles a day to get water to get the resources that a lot of people like take for granted and yet like their English was just phenomenal um, like you know and and it's interesting seeing these opportunities that um, are all of a sudden like opening up in in these emerging economies. Yeah, I and mean, that's that touches on something that we're kind of focused on at the moment, which is trying to hire local talent. Because um, I think it's very easy being a kind of UK or US-based firm to just go and just take more US UK people and bring them in country. But as you said, in someone like a Kenya, the, the level of English is very good, the level of education is very good. I'd say South Africa particularly, you see, you know, incredibly comparable talent from a commercial perspective, much cheaper, but also you can just sort of create opportunity by, by employing directly. Uh, and I think you know, Southeast Asia and, and Latin America, another level above as well, um, in terms of the, the sort of, yeah, skill sets you can find. So, no, definitely a big point for us. I think with, with East Africa specifically, you, know, you have a very good level of English, you've got a good level of education, but they just don't have the opportunity professionally. And so I think we're, we're very focused on trying to hire entry-level people um, that we can then skill up and train up um, because, yeah, I think it, it makes a lot of sense and that really helps us achieve our, our impact goals.
and I mean, how 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 well, how does that um, affect your business? Like, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies that they're not prepared to um, hire junior developers. They're not prepared to hire like young, inexperienced um, uh, technologists. I mean, have you have you found that to have like a net positive result for you guys? Yeah, I, no, I, I definitely think so. On a technology standpoint, particularly, I think we've kind of had, have a little gold mine with our, our, team, our team in Nairobi um, because I think uh, Nairobi has this history with this digital money. So in Peso, which is kind of the first iteration of mobile money globally, started in Kenya or is, is, a, is a Kenyan product. And that means that you've got a lot of people that are very well accustomed with working with it. Uh, and so as we kind of scale, you know, geographically, that skill set's been great. So yeah, we've found a lot of very good Kenyan technologists. Uh, we have dedicated our entire team there. Uh, we have within that team, uh, there are three Kenyans, uh, and three Americans, uh, but it meshes very well together. And what, what's your background? Like, how, how did you get to this point? Uh, so I, mine is more traditional, I guess the other guys on the team. Um, so I uh, studied economics uh, and finance. I then uh, was a trader at Lehman Brothers, um, trading convertible bonds and, and various other things. And then was a founding partner of a hedge fund, which we grew to, to one of the larger funds in Europe. Uh, and so at that point was all commercial, uh, fully developed markets, or some emerging markets, but basically all very uh, large scale public uh, listed kind of companies. Um, and I just had an aspiration to do something that had a bit more impact. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, I, uh, I exited that business, I sold my, my share in the business and uh, went to do a PhD, um, started a family office that was investing really in impact focused projects. And through that came into contact with a lot of different kind of you know impact businesses and what struck me with the opportunity with lendable was that you're combining impact with something that actually made commercial sense you know we can make really decent profits and i also always think that that's much more scalable if you get something that's not niche that generally makes business sense you can have a, a way more impact than you could with something that relies on, on philanthropy um and so that's why i became you know more involved more involved with lendable um so any Anyone starting out then, would you advise them to go like super niche or on what they're doing? Look, there's, there's, so there's not one single path, I think, getting anywhere. I think that the, the things that were in common are that uh, I think overnight success doesn't really exist. You know, people have, you have to put an awful lot of work to create value. Uh, and so I think the fact that you have, to, you have to work hard, have discipline and just, you know, keep pushing at things and, and uh, yeah, work hard. I think that is universal. So um, sure. people don't realize often when you start your own business, um, they think, oh, wow, you know, you've made a tremendous return on it. But the amount, the number of hours you'll probably put in to get to that point, when you work it out on a per hour basis, will never be quite as impressive. So I think no. for sure it's the work. Beyond that, you know, as I said, it's, it's sort of horses for courses. I think going a traditional route and getting a solid footing so you have, you know, maybe a little bit of financial security behind you or, um, you know, you've built up some expertise and being trained, I think that can be good. But equally, I think you can learn a lot by doing immediately. So I, I don't think it's necessary to either go either of those routes, if not to just go straight out and try to set yourself first or to, to train up in a larger corporate. I mean, personally, I think working in a more entrepreneurial environment is always more enjoyable, but how you get there. Yeah. Sure. Well, look, you know, you, you've gone from Lehman Brothers to Lendable. That's, a, that's, quite, that's quite a shift. Um, I actually 
um, used to work as a broker. And we, um, one of my clients was Lehman Brothers. And it was actually around uh, September 2008. What and I remember... Broken? What, sorry? What were you broken? Uh, US equities. Okay. Like, I remember... It was, no, it, was around, it was around the time of Bear Stearns, when like, Bear Stearns um, like, completely collapsed. I remember just one of the girls that we were, one of the traders at Lehman Brothers, just on her Bloomberg terminal. It was just like one day it was just gone, dead. And all of a sudden we just saw all the people from uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers just like, like ra- rapidly disappear. So yeah, crazy it was a uh, crazy time. Yeah. I were mean, you there around that time? I left before. So I left the year before, very fortunately. Um, not, not from any other reason, but good luck. But yeah, look, it, it, it got excessive. I mean, I think markets to some extent are excessive now, different, but excessive valuation now. Um, yeah, I think it just shows you, it, it's crazy there that, you know, you have thousands of people working, uh, working now in my graduate class, you know, within, I started three years before that, four years before that maybe, you know, everyone's out of a job three, four years later, you could never imagine it. So yeah, things can change very fast. And what what do you think um, is is the future of like crypto and fintech? Like, how, how how do you see these two areas like merging and working together? Yeah. So, in terms of blockchain, generally, um, look, I think we're at this point where it's been, people are trying to apply it very very broadly, uh, and it is you know it's a general purpose technology it could be applied broadly, but I think probably there are certain projects where people are trying to apply it where I'm not necessarily sure it brings that much of an advantage. To my eyes, I'm, I'm not a blockchain expert, but to my eyes, you know, it's always going to be, to be decentralized, it's always going to come at a certain cost. And do you need the decentralization always? I'm not sure. But th- that said, I think there are certain ways in which it can be applied, which are going to be very, very powerful. Um, so I think blockchain and its applications in terms of DeFi, I think could be really interesting. There's a number of things that will, will definitely work, you know, you have central bank digital currencies. I think there'll be a lot of private projects that work. In terms of crypto as a currency, I'm I'm less bullish because um, I, I think that that doesn't mean I'm not you know. So Ethereum, for example, you can bought on a lot of things to it. I think Ethereum as can has value in terms of its tokens in terms of its value for authenticating transactions. So I think that has value. But in terms of actually being used as a currency. Outside, like really screwed up countries, Venezuela, you know, Zimbabwe, places like this, I can't really see that. I can't really see a central bank wanting to lose control of its, of its money supply. Right now, the technology is nowhere near efficient enough to, to run very large scale transactions. So I guess that's where I'm sitting at. I'm not necessarily an expert, but I see the value in blockchain as being its uses, as what it's supposed to do in terms of you know, decentralized verification as a, a transactional tool for DeFi, for you know, even charitable giving, all these kind of cool applications rather than this currency. Yeah, see, I think things like Bitcoin, I think is actually just much more, it's just, it's a digital asset. It's, a, it's an asset class. It'll be a benchmark at, at best. Um, but well, Bitcoin, I, I agree with you. Bitcoin specifically, you know, I think you can treat these things as a commodity, a security um, or something else. And I think Bitcoin, you know, the technology of Bitcoin is like the original, right? And obviously it can get updated, but transactionally it's not efficient at all. Um, it's not good technology, Bitcoin. So I think it will, not, it will not be used in my mind as a security or a currency, but because it's the first one, because it's finite, it can be looked at as a commodity. So I think if you're gonna invest in Bitcoin, I think you're seeing it as like a piece of art, like something that just is, as you said, a digital asset. And so I think you can see it as store of value, 
but you just get it's just, for me it, it's very very similar to looking at a piece of art and, and thinking do i value that scarcity i look at it differently see i, I look at it as more of just like it's, it's a benchmark it's a it's a benchmark for all other um uh crypt, crypto currencies essentially um do i think cryptos are going to take off in a more commercial sense i, I actually do I, I i i think there's some quite exciting like um areas like with with dogecoin within like uh payment within payment systems and and we're seeing some like quite cool brands that are actually starting to accept it i don't see bitcoin going that way i do see other cryptos but i i, I think like you say like bitcoin's the first it's the original and i think it will probably hold its place as the benchmark yeah, look, all these can be updated, you know, they can be yeah. developed. So Bitcoin can be updated and become relevant as a transactional tool. The current state of Bitcoin, with how inefficient it is, I don't think it can be used transactions. So I think it's, it's used as, you call it a benchmark, you call it just an asset. It's like a store value. It's, it's got interest in that you own part of the first of a blockchain, not just the first crypto, crypto, the first public blockchain. Yeah. And that, you can say that's pretty cool. I want to own that. So I, I yeah. see that, that as it. And then on the other, yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. I still don't think you'll see widespread, you know, crypto is money. And I'm using it to transact with lots of different places. I know occasional brands do it now. At Dan Road, I don't really see it personally. Um, but I don't think that means it doesn't have a use because it can be used for creating, you know, exchanges that are more accessible. These are the things. So I think it definitely has uses. So, I mean, see, I've, I've been to quite a few places recently and I'm seeing they're not accepting cash. And I'm just thinking how long before they say, right, we're not accepting cash, but we are accepting some form of cryptocurrency. But for me, it's not that the, the individual wouldn't want to. Like a business no, company, sure. I trust it. It's just, if you got to a level of it being widespread, is a government really going to say, yeah, okay, good. I'm allowing you to transact in a currency that I don't control the money supply. So I can't use it as a central bank to control, you know, my inflation target, my employment target, all this sort of thing. That maybe is more difficult to tax. Uh, more but difficult. do they have a choice? That's the problem. Like, look, there's huge issues with like decentralized finance, right? Like, if we if we live in a world where there's no finance, where, where everything's decentralized, there's no regulation. There's no there's no real regulation, and that in itself causes like huge problems. But you know, with with fiat currencies going the way they're going. Uh, and what I mean by that is that like, the amount of debt governments have accumulated and, and not just not just not just the governments have accumulated debt. What's changed is that actually it's the it's the people that have um, accumulated debt as well now. So do they have any other choice other than to try and regulate the cryptocurrencies? And we have seen over 100 governments since November 2021, um, you know, move more towards like regulation. I think there's two different points here, right? There's the point in terms of what's happened with fiat currencies, which is we've got to you know 0% interest rates. We've had to start printing and potentially debase them and you could have a loss of faith in fiat currencies. Then that's a slightly different point because the solution there doesn't have to be crypto. You could also have a solution where we have a gold standard again. You know, and there are pros and cons of all these things. I'm not saying that's a good idea, but like I'm, I'm saying yeah, it's a slightly sure. different problem in terms of the, the, the basement of fiat. In terms of then the transactional properties, look, in some ways, you know, crypto applied as a digital central bank currency could be like exactly the opposite of what the crypto community wants, because it could become the most traceable uh, like asset possible where everyone, knows, the government knows exactly what you got, where you're spending it. Everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. 
And then, yeah, everyone knows, yeah. And that could actually be the worst thing, because that's like yeah. full transparency. People won't, will actually hate that, right? It could yeah. go that way. But as I say, I still come down to the fact that large developed economies, I think they will always have the choice of whether they want to, um, they want to, to allow currency to be decentralized. And I think that's quite a hard pill to swallow. Um, yeah, I, that's what I think, yeah. I, I don't, yeah, see, I, I think we're seeing a lot of like decentralized automated organizations, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the reality is, is that for them to work, part of it can be decentralized, but you can't have everyone running around with, with a decentralized currency because the reality is, is that they're just going to people just start killing each other. How long before you just literally take a gun to someone's head and say, oh, right, hand over all your Bitcoin? By the way, no one's ever, ever going to know about it. I read in the news, and I don't know how accurate this is, but supposedly, like, North Korea stole, like, $650 million worth of Ethereum last week, you know? Whether they did or not, I don't know. But, but again, like, that's where regulation kind of will support the thing, in that as you get more regulated, so that, you know, Bitcoin, it's like, you know, the... The off-ramping of that stolen Bitcoin is still difficult, right? Because you know what which wallet it went to. You just don't know who owns the wallet. So, like, the, you know, I don't. I think these issues are issues now in the way that we're currently set up with lack of regulation, just growing and everything's changing. But I think crypto can be quite secure down the road. Um, so that doesn't worry me too much, right? Like I think, and also just you know, right now, like you, know, you lose your, your your key and you lost your Bitcoin. Again, the solutions you can have for that that can be relatively secure storage and things. So, like, I think we'll we'll get to grips with those sort of issues. Yeah, I I also think that like you know the, the thing with any currency. So what really gives it the value isn't the underlying asset. It's not about whether you've got the gold standard, you know, or or any other equivalent. It's about the government actually saying that it has that value and actually the government underwriting it and. Um, I think that we are with any form of cryptocurrencies, it's, it's hard, if not impossible right now, like you said, technologies will change, but it's hard to justify like underwriting any form of cryptocurrency. But I think it's difficult. Like, look, I, the way I look at crypto personally, sure. is I look at it like a tech stock where I'm like, the value is its transactional use. So how good is this technology? How many developers are working on this behind the scenes will develop it? and make this token useful as a transactional settlement. Sure. The disadvantage it has versus a, a tech stock is that a tech company can have patents and protect their technology. Whereas, you know, with crypto, you can just say, oh, I like that, I like that approach. I'll just copy it and create another one. Sure. And then the only thing you're missing is that scale that's built up in it. It's the marketing around it, right? What, when you when you look at companies like Palantir Technologies, um, you see all the exciting stuff they're doing. No one's going to come along and just copy that. So, but I mean, with that, I mean, coming back to Lendable, so, so what, what does the future hold for you guys? What are, what's next steps? Uh, so, so good, two or three things are real focus. So the first is just continue geographical expansion. So as I said, we started in Africa. We did our first Southeast Asia transaction about two and a half years ago, our first Latin transaction about a year and a half ago. And we've been building up teams in both those geographies. So, uh, we're now in Mexico and Ecuador in um, Latin America. We'll be in Peru and Colombia as well by the end of the year. In Southeast Asia, we're in Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines. Uh, I think we should be, we'll expand probably to Malaysia, Cambodia. Um, so I think there's that geographical element. The second thing is right now we do two things. We lend, we use our technology to lend. 
The thing we're doing much more this year is also using our technology just as a standalone business. So there'll be other lenders or providers of capital that want to do transactions that don't fit our mandate or are much bigger than we would do or something like that, where they can't make these loans without having some ability to monitor and verify collateral. So we're using our software directly. Um, I think the third thing is going to different verticals. So right now we basically just support financial inclusion. So it's just receivables and payments that we monitor and take as security. And what we're looking to do now is expand that remit, looking at SaaS companies, looking at climate and, and carbon measurement. Cool. You got a lot going on there. Sure. A lot going on. Well, look, we'll leave you there. But honestly, great to have you on. Thank you so much for everything. And uh, yeah, exciting. So we'll, we'll be watching what you guys do next at Lendable. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot.